1: Welcome to episode 138 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Owen from washedupemo.com. Today we welcome Eric Moline from Ultimate Book. Ultimate Fakebook, we're from Kansas, and on the amazing independent label, Initial Records, among others. They tour with bands from the air, including the Get Up Kids, At The Drive-In, and Motion City Soundtrack. Eric was also in a couple bands before that called Truck Stop Love and The Dead Girls. He's also a film critic alongside his day job doing marketing and social media, and he's a world champion in air guitar, which we start talking about as the podcast starts up. Thank you to all the Patreon supporters out there. You are keeping the lights on. If you want to help out, patreon.com slash washed up emo. This is episode 138 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with Eric Moline from Ultimate Fakebook.
2: what happens is the first round is is a one-minute track of your choosing and that's usually you know whatever the 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 person has been working on all year it's kind of like the you know it's it's the the first impression you need to get uh, a high enough score to make it to the second round and then in the second round uh they throw a song at you and you have to make up a routine on the spot
1: oh interesting so it is like a little bit um, like you're not, you're not, you need to know, is it, is it like obscure or is it like, is it like Muzak? Like what, what, what are some of the songs that have like been thrown out that way?
2: Yeah, no, they, 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 they're not trying to trick you or anything. It's, it's, um, you know, it, it's just a song and either you know it or you don't. Um, the, the second or the, the year that I missed winning the Air Guitar National Championship by a tenth of a point, um, I was in the lead going into the second round, and the song was uh, a song from the TV show Metalocalypse, mm-hmm. um, and the guy who wrote it and who plays plays it on the series was there, the series creator, and so he was standing to the right of the stage playing the song live, and we were supposed to be uh, doing air guitar Routines to it, but I had never heard the song before, and the guy that beat me knew it back in front. So I, it uh, it was a, a disadvantage for me that year. I didn't, I didn't, uh, didn't win it, but I got my revenge when I when I went to Finland and and uh, and won the world title instead. So
1: <laughs> oh, definitely. So I was just thinking about this. Most people, when I ask, we start, you know, hey, when did you get into punk rock? When did you start playing music? You obviously played air guitar before. Any instrument, right?
2: Well, I mean, essentially, uh, air guitar was kind of hand-in-hand with me learning how to play the drums when I was when I was growing up. You know, I was about 15 and uh, bought a drum set. And pretty much, I, I had it in my bedroom and I pretty much practiced every day just putting on, like, a pair of headphones and, and trying to play along with whatever was, you know, on the stereo. Um, but at the same time, I was playing air guitar. You know, I wanted to be a guitarist and I just could never figure it out. I actually had an acoustic guitar at one point and it just didn't come naturally. And when I sat down in front of the drums, it was like, Oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. uh, yeah, when I was a kid, I would jump around in my room and listen to all my favorite thrash metal albums and play air guitar, you know, so air guitar and drums have been something I've been doing for a really long time.
1: I think there's only, I think the only move I could probably do on air guitar is the, uh, slash, flick of the cigarette before a solo i i, I could always do oh, that yeah. like take a long drag a and then flick it yeah. right before you you know get into the second uh solo of uh november rain like that's probably my only move there you go.
2: <laughs> 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 yeah i i i think it's funny now because like most people um you know more recently i've been known for being the air guitar guy but it's funny because the people who meet me are like uh, oh yeah it's it's a uh, you know, it's it's just air guitar all the time for you, huh? And I'm like, well, it, 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 people kind of don't understand that. Like back in the day, when I used to go to punk rock shows and you know shows at, at small clubs and stuff like that, the way that that I would rock out to bands was playing air guitar. Like I just, I'm standing in the front row, and my right hand is just you know, nonstop moving with, you know, whatever the guitar player is doing and everybody else is standing there and bobbing their head, but I'm playing air guitar. So that's kind of how I've enjoyed shows pretty much, you know, my entire life. So doing it on stage is just kind of an extension of that, you know? And I think maybe because I always wanted to be out front years of frustration from being the drummer, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I finally got to, uh, uh, be the guy that everybody was looking at instead of the guy in the back.
1: And what's interesting about that, too, is I I when I was watching some of your performances and then watching, I mean, I've obviously seen air guitar championships before. I respect when someone understands that if it's higher notes, move your fingers up the neck. You know, it's yeah. just like, if, I mean, <laughs> you're playing it wrong, even on an air guitar, if you do not have, uh, you know, the right positioning on the fretboard.
2: Yeah, there's a couple basic uh, air guitar rules that I try to like stick by, even though you can get really creative and do all kinds of shit with an air, gu- with a air guitar that you can't do with a air guitar. Um, but one of them is, is uh, the high notes are, are you know, up front and the low notes are, are uh, at the other end of the neck. You know? And so if you can just keep that in mind, that's really, you know, all you need to know.
1: Uh, and of course, you know, with it, if, if if it's a bass guitar, you can go out further because it's a longer neck.
2: <laughs> yeah, but don't do the airbase for too long because uh, you don't want to get disqualified. And and also, uh, airbase is pretty lame.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there are no airbase championships. Air Base.
2: Yeah, I did a whole airbase routine one night because I don't compete anymore. So I just uh, host shows. And I was hosting in Kansas City, and I did like a a four minute air base routine that had like Seinfeld and all kinds of you know Paul Red slapping the bass and all that stuff and it was uh, <laughs> it was hilarious and horrible at the same time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's so cool, uh yeah, I think too i mean you, you you talked about sort of the you know learning drums and air guitar at the same time uh growing up in Kansas and being you know from that area like what were some of those first places that you found out about punk rock or started going to those shows like what was a what 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 was connecting you to it and b how did you find what you were looking for
2: yeah um there was a a really cool record store um you know uh near where i lived that i used to go to all the time um and they had these, uh, you know, how they have like the dividers. You're flipping through the, you know, the records or the the cassettes or whatever. And mm-hmm. uh, they have those dividers, you know, that say the name of the band. This this particular place had some really cool people working there that liked uh, independent music. And so they would write little mini novels uh, above the name of the band. So for instance, it would say Soul Asylum, and then above Soul Asylum, it would be like you know, this twin tone band from Minneapolis has three independent records and they come out of the same scene as Husker Du and The Replacements and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, you know, we didn't have the internet. So, um, I was going to the record store and basically getting my education, you know, and they would play cool stuff in the store. And so, um, that's kind of how I discovered like SST and, you know, Sonic Youth and twin tone and all that independent stuff when I was in, in high school. And then, um, uh, I lived in Olathe, Kansas, which is about 20, 30 minutes from Lawrence, Kansas, which which is where I currently live. And we had a legendary punk rock club here called The Outhouse.
1: Why was that? What what was like, was it the guy that booked it, like knew what the hell was going on? Were they, how did they, how did you, how, why do you think they sort of connected that way?
2: Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's tough to say because... um the outhouse was really, I mean, there's a documentary about it. It's kind of a legendary place because it's a, uh, it's a cement shack in the middle of a cornfield really, uh, in Lawrence, Kansas. Yeah. Like you're literally driving in the middle of nowhere. And then suddenly you turn the corner and there's a bunch of punk rockers and, and skaters and metalheads all hanging out. You know, <laughs> I saw Fugazi there. Uh, I saw, Oh God, how many bands did I see there? Uh, even, even in the metal days, they had like Pantera and white zombie there before those bands were big. I think Nirvana played there, but I, I was not at that show. I saw Nirvana at the student union, uh, here in Lawrence. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's tough to say, man. I think it was a very organic thing. Lawrence is just, a you know, kind of an oasis in the middle of Kansas in terms of arts and culture. And, uh, you know, even, even back then in the, in the eighties, you know, they were, uh, you know, doing the punk rock thing. And and bands obviously there was a need because bands needed uh somewhere between Minneapolis and Austin. That's you know, what I was they about to somewhere say. Somewhere between Denver and St. Louis, you know. That's what I so. mean.
1: Like you guys were in that area where I feel like they're on the way through and they needed, you know, that was like, if it's just, it's cool when those little pockets like that, because I, when you said oasis, it is an oasis because you think that there's yeah, nothing yeah. going on and you've got this place that other cultures and other people from other cities are kind of traveling through and you're taking something from that when each of those people come through
2: yeah and it was really like um you know you you would i would watch when i was you know growing up i would watch videos on 120 minutes and headbangers ball and you know see this kind of stuff but to go to a cornfield and, and <laughs> in lawrence kansas and have it actually you know delivered to you and, and be in the middle of it it felt like in in some respects you know these bands were were bringing their ideas and their culture to us but also we like <laughs> we were hosting them you know they had to like adjust to kansas when they came and uh, i'm sure for them it was uh you know it was for me when i first played there it was kind of a, a you know a, an
1: amazing experience you know i mean it, it probably felt like you made it
2: well at, at that point uh i think we were on at like one in the morning or something when i, when I finally got to play at the outhouse but uh and i was really really loaded but uh um yeah i mean it, it was you know it's it's it was nothing it was just a stage and a floor and the stage was barely above the ground the lights there were no stage lights it was like somebody turned on a couple light bulbs or something you know um and uh, it was just awesome <laughs> it was also kind of scary too because you know i was uh, uh in high school i was kind of getting into the the punk rock and getting out of the metal but i still had long hair you know, I looked like I'm in the head and, um, you know, depending on what night you'd go, it was, uh, you know, not great to be a metalhead. you know, like mm-hmm. if the skin did were all out. And, you know, and you, you would read stuff and hear about stuff and, and, uh, you know, it could be a little intimidating sometimes to go to a show at the outhouse.
1: That's cool. And then, uh, when did the, you know, the, you had started playing drums and playing in bands. When did ultimate fake book kind of, take shape obviously was it like was it early 97 96
2: so i was in a band called uh truck stop love and we were living in manhattan kansas whereas which is where bill and nick moved to um which was the other college town ku is is uh lawrence has ku and manhattan kansas uh, has k-state and so um i was playing in truck stop love and we uh we you know got a lot of college airplay and got signed to uh, a major label um and we toured for a couple years and then we got dropped and that was kind of you know breaking up and falling apart and bill and nick were playing an ultimate fake book and they had a drummer that they really liked but um couldn't really or wasn't really keeping up with them and doing the same type of stuff um and so they basically wooed me away and and uh and uh, into joining Ultimate Fakebook, and that was '96, late '96, early '97, something like that.
1: That's cool. I'd, I'd forgotten. Ab- i would not forgotten about Suckle, but I'd real. I'd forgotten that that was like prior, and then it was on Scotty Brothers, which not many, <laughs> yeah. not many people know about anymore. Bizarre. It was the
2: weirdest experience, man. Uh, that uh, that label was something else. I actually listened to our A and R guy, the guy who signed us, defending us to somebody else at the label through. Uh, uh, an open door that I was right behind. Really? Uh, and he was, oh yeah. And he was saying like, why did you sign this band? What, if, what do you see in this band? And I'm just like, Oh my God, this is not going to go well. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, and we recorded, uh, the truck, our first, uh, truck stop love EP. They have, uh, two studios, um, that they would work out of in, in Santa Monica. And in the a studio was weird out doing, uh Alapalooza, and we were down the hall doing our record <laughs> they had no idea what to do with us and it was like we get it you're signing bands in the wake of nirvana and you know we've got long hair and we sound kind of grungy but we had a little midwest twang that kind of set us apart from from other people but uh you know they uh, we understood why why they picked us up but uh i don't think that uh, anybody really understood what we were doing so it was fun, though. It was
1: a lot of fun. Oh, I'm sure. And then I guess with, with Ultimate Fakebook, when you got in with them and you started working on um, that, the first record in, like, 97, was, what were you feeling? Like, I mean, that definitely, I was in school at the time. I think there was a lot of, obviously, the internet hadn't taken hold just yet. There were, you know, people had it. There were, obviously, it wasn't as instant as things are, but it was out there. People had email. Um, well, in terms of you guys taking that next level, were you feeling some excitement or some sort of uh, momentum, um, in the scene?
2: Well, yeah, you know, it's actually, it's kind of weird because, uh, you know, there was this brief moment in time where, uh, you know, Manhattan, Kansas was, was, a, a, a kind of a hotbed. There was a lot of really good bands around there. And I think that, um, coming from Manhattan and not Lawrence, um, gives you a real chip on your shoulder, you know, right? because all of the cool bands, uh, in Kansas are are from Lawrence. And so when you're from Manhattan, it makes you uh, a little bit more stubborn and you got to stick to your guns and, you know, make sure you correct people every time they assume that you're from Lawrence (laughs) because you're a cool band from Kansas. And so, um, it was actually, it, it really drove us more, I think coming from the town that wasn't as cool, you know? Um, and so when, when Bill and Nick and I joined up, it was, it really was like an immediate bond with like guys in a gang, you know, like we were just like, we're going to fucking do this. Like, this is, we're going to quit our jobs. We're going to put our stuff in storage. We're going to go on tour. We're going to like make this happen, you know? And, uh and it was cool. We were really, really driven. And, and uh, you know, we just, we just started anytime a band would come to town, we would just like that. We liked, you know, we would just like hook up and, you know, help them out, give them a place to stay or whatever, and then immediately be like, take us on tour. (laughs) How do we get out of here? You know? So um, it was really cool. You know, I was in uh, Kill Creek for a month between Truck Stop Love and Ultimate Fake. And um, Kill Creek had asked me to join and Bill and Nick were trying to lure me away. And so I decided to go with them because uh, the songs that Bill was writing that he was writing at the time were just so good. And so catchy, and he didn't even know like he didn't know he was essentially writing pop songs they were you got uh, ultimate fake book was coming from a really grungy kind of thing, and uh you know Bill was just a guitar player, and they had a different lead singer and when the singer quit, Bill was like, "Oh, I guess I'm a singer now, and it turns out he's great, <laughs> so it was like, "Oh wow um and so it was really a chance to like dig in with those guys and really uh work that sound out you know because um it was it was really exciting and this kind of cross between you know catchy pop rock and and big dumb guitar rock which we all had a a, a love for and so uh yeah working with those two guys when we got together it was just like something kind of barked and just kind of happened and it it felt really you know right i guess
1: That's cool. I mean, into that time period, I think there was a lot of, I mean, I know it always happens, but I still feel like because that time was before the internet, a little bit, like it just, it wasn't as insane. And I think the being able to, maybe things were a little bit slower, but also as you're making that music and sort of hearing other genres, there was, you know, the punk scene, or there was the metal scene or the ska scene, and you kind of were all around each other under that independent rock uh, because there was such a separation. There was the haves and haves nots. Um, I think with what a major label could do and in indie, definitely had a lot of inroads, but it just, it seemed like there weren't as many outlets like you had to get, you know, you had to have radio people. You had to have all these different things. Now you put out a song whenever you want and people will hear it. If the right things happen, that was sort of a little bit different. Um, was there any, feelings like that that there was like this community sort of forming around that time.
2: Well, yeah, I mean it was very very different from today. It was um you know, you there was a a, a pretty high bar to entry for uh, uh for a making music and then b putting out on something that people can hear and then c getting people to actually listen to it, right? It's not like today where you can just uh you know, put stuff up on 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 the web and and the community was really organic. And it's like you said, you know, like in Manhattan, we had a, a ska band that we hung out with a lot that we really liked called Ruska Bank. Um, and we had a bunch of other bands, a punk rock band called Jiffy Boy uh, and kind of a math rock band uh, called Elfontaine. Fontaine. And, you know, everybody had their own kind of thing that they did, but you, you supported everybody and everybody was, you know, in it together to to you know, hold everybody else up. So we would play shows with Ruska bank because, um, they had a different crowd from us, you know? And so it was really cool to get in front of their people and, and vice versa. Um, but yeah, the internet, <laughs> here's, here's what's crazy when we went on the road, um, in ultimate fake book. And I remember when we first bought ultimate fake com, which we don't own anymore. <laughs> Somebody else has, uh, we, we were on the road and, and we were telling the guy who was kind of running the site, you know, um, when, when, when we meet kids at shows, when we meet fans at shows, they love to like make homemade stuff and, and bring them stuff that our music has inspired, like t-shirts or they, they'll bake cookies or something like that. And then they want to like take photos, you know, and they want to like, you know, be in the photo with us and the thing that they made. And so, um, We'd, we were doing an early version of a social network without even knowing it. Uh, but essentially we would tell all of the kids, send this into our website. And then we had a feature on the site where when you loaded it, um, a, a gallery was, was loading and would go through like, you know, 30 or 40 random photos of, of us with kids that shows. So essentially, you know, we were, we were wanting them to see themselves, in the website, they go to ultimatefakebook.com, And it's not just about us. It's, you know, Oh, look at this community of people. These here, were, here were people at the show in Dallas and, you know, here was people in, at the show in Florida and, you know, um, that was really cool. That, that is actually, cool. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, we, when the band broke up, that whole site just died and we didn't do anything and kind of disappeared. But,
1: That was cool for a while. What was it like, uh, you know, re-releasing the record on 550 slash Epic, re-releasing This Will Be Laughing Week?
2: Yeah, that was strange. Um, You know, we did This Will Be Laughing Week independently. We recorded it uh, here in Eudora, uh, Kansas with Ed Rose. And um, I think it cost us like $7,000 when it was all said and done. Um, And then when when the record got bought out by uh, Epic 550 – the dinner that the the label took us to in New York when they flew uh, Ed out there and we remastered the record um, cost more than our entire record. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, we were like, what is going on? This is insane, you know? Uh, and and I, I will say this, t- to our credit, I think, you know, the fact that we just recorded two more songs for them and then put the exact same record out that that we had already done independently um you know kind of spoke to uh either a they had like no idea what to do with it or how to give us input or b they just thought you know this is a good enough sounding record that we can just put it out on a major without you know doing anything and so we had a ton of creative freedom on that label they really didn't know how to Metal with us, so it was it was kind of a badge of honor. we were really excited that this you know this little record that we recorded ourselves got got put out with uh you know pretty much no changes to it
1: that's really cool and then to also have Ed go out there too with you guys, I think people should know that name more, um especially for your scene, but also just I'm sure a ton of records from that era uh people lis- li- have listened to and don't even realize it
2: yeah yeah check the backs of uh your favorite albums it's a good chance that ed rose has produced uh quite a few of them he he uh you know in addition to working with us uh he he did the get up kids and um we turned them on to motion city soundtrack and he did the first motion city record um you know and then a ton of bands came through after uh after the get up kids and and motion city and us kind of had some success a bunch more bands went went through and uh and recorded with him, but yeah, he's he's amazing, and he doesn't really produce anymore. He just like uh, deals in weird digital drums.
1: <laughs>
2: what do you mean by that? <laughs> kind of crazy. Uh, he's like a he's like a reseller, you know, like he collects antique, vintage, and strange electronic drums, and then uh, resells them on the internet. <laughs> wow,
1: that is really random. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. It is
1: so important though to have somebody like that in a in a smaller city that can, you know, help someone put their vision down on tape.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, he he's uh he's done it all. He's done all kinds of different styles of music and and going in with him, I mean, he did all the truck stop love demos too. So, uh, you know, we worked with Ed going way back uh, in the early 90s and um So, yeah, going to Ed was kind of like you can you can spend your money at one of the other studios around or you can save up enough to to go in with Ed and get it done right. And and uh, yeah, he he became a good creative collaborator as well. Like, you know, when we would have a really dumb idea, he would encourage us to go for it (laughs) like the end of perfect hair or Mm -hmm. the beginning of it. Right. Sounds like a TV jingle. And we were like, "Yeah, let's really cheese this up." And he's like, "Okay, I can put vibes in there and blah blah blah, <laughs> you know, xylophone." We're like, "Sweet."
1: <laughs> Helping you know, someone's creativity.
2: The, yeah, we would have never had the ability to do that, you know, by ourselves.
1: Did you feel any? Things around. Obviously, the Get Up Kids got thrown into the word emo. Emotion City did a little bit later. Did you guys have a connection to that, or was it just like you said earlier about you had friends that were ska bands, punk bands, grunge bands, um, or was was there a, was there a deeper connection that you guys felt with some of those bands?
2: Well, we never we never used the word emo to describe ourselves, and in fact, I don't even think we really knew what it was at, at first. Um, but the thing that that really changed our our career trajectory uh, no doubt was uh, opening for the get up kids and at the drive-in for a month. And um, when we got that tour, it was because I believe uh, James Deweese's uh, girlfriend at the time was playing in another band frog pond that we really uh, liked and we used to play with a lot. And she turned James onto the record and then he turned to get up kids onto it. And they were like, well, shit, you know, let's give these hometown boys a chance and uh you know, take them on tour. And so that pretty much changed everything for us, honestly. And, you know, we went on the road and we, we were seeing bands that kind of sounded like the get-up kids and we recognized that, that people were calling it emo and we kind of uh, understood, you know, this this burgeoning kind of sound and, and what it was because a lot of bands that we played with sounded like that. But, um, you know, and... <laughs> And then we used to get the Weezer thing all the time, which was hilarious. Um, you know, people just kind of lumped us into, you know, Weezer sound-alike band. Um, and we used to get, like, the the, the, the the record that people would play before we went on, like, 90%
1: of the time it was Weezer. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that or, like, Nerf Herder.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, we played with Nerf Herder. We love those guys. We actually did a tour with them, which was fun. But, <laughs> I like um, Nerf Herder. <laughs> Yeah, oh yeah, Perry's hilarious, but but you know it it, it never failed. It was like you go to a, you go to a club and and uh, you know there here comes the Weezer. Oh, it must be our set next, you know, <laughs> which is fine. I mean, I, I get it. You know, labels are are really good ways of of uh, you know finding out about music, honestly, because when you when you feel like there's this organic pulsing kind of scene happening. Uh, and you don't know how to describe it, um, then it, it's got to be it has it has to be put into a box or a category or something so that people can group other people under it and then discover them. Yeah. And so that's kind of the way I looked at it. It was for us. It wasn't that we were an emo band, but we definitely toured on the emo circuit.
1: Which is, I think, part of the thing about when you can fit in those circuits like you said like going out with like emotion or going out with i have to drive and get up kids and it making sense and, and it kind of like it's it's like a little clearer if that makes sense of like having different things on a tour versus get up kids time four. but if you have ultimate fake book at the drive okay now i'm getting three different things that i want <laughs> I want, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like pop. Yeah. I've got a little harder stuff. And then I've got a little more, you know, the punkier, but then a little more in- introspective. Like, it's all kind of there. And I think that was what made so many of those tours. And I, I know it still happens today. Like, that's when I get more most excited about a tour is when they are different. And for you guys to be able to play in with all those different genres, I think, was a like a huge uh, get
2: yeah it was really fun honestly i mean to be in a band like ultimate fake book and and know that we're just doing you know pretty straightforward uh uh uh, uh, pop songs you know with our own you know specific kind of sense of humor and bent and and everything um but still you know if you're if you're doing pop music you can fit in anywhere you know and so we would do uh like (laughs) i remember we played a a show with a bunch of ska bands in cleveland and the kids were like all, you know, sitting Indian style on the floor and flipping us off when we were playing. Uh, ma- ska kids and were
1: flipping you off? I thought ska kids were like the yeah. nicest kids on the planet. I guess not.
2: Uh, yeah. They were they were they were showing their disdain for a non ska band being on the bill, so <laughs> uh you know, and we just we would eat shit like that up. Like we were our our mantra was we will play with anyone anywhere, right? Like we were we we just assumed uh, we had no fear and we were just like, you know, wherever you put us, we will, we'll make something of it, you know? And that, again, it goes back to that kind of feeling of being in a gang, you know, and being really united. It was kind of like us against the world. And, uh, so yeah, it, you know, we, we play anywhere, but, uh, you know, certainly the, the emo circuit kind of, uh, embraced us the most. And, and if you think about it, I mean, you know, the most popular bands and, in, in that genre, if you want to call it that they're all pop bands too.
1: It was again. It, you're right. It was whatever the pop one was, then opened it up to, a, to another group of people. There might have been the the like slightly less pop ones before them, but like in the first time hearing Get Up Kids, it was like okay, there this is gonna this is now going to be something else right after it, and then of course the bands after them kind of make it more poppier. Um, so yeah. yeah, I think that's you're totally right about the you know a pop ga- band can fit. Um, you might get flipped off, but you're, you. Know, <laughs> uh, but it would definitely flip, um, or, or or it would definitely fit. Uh, the other thing too, I thought it was you know going from you know obviously Epic five fifty. I'm sure that was a crazy time. I was just starting working at labels in two thousand, and I think it was me getting hit up by the presidents of those labels, being like, "Hey, what what like punk rock's happening? Tell me what's going on." And I'm like, "What? Don't you have people that make like?" God knows what to tell you this. Why are you asking me uh, <laughs> from that to going to initial records, which at that time was still a lot going on. Um, and at the same time, independent music was sort of being, it was less, like I said earlier, it was there was less of like those uh, uh, gatekeepers.
2: Yeah. We had, we had the strangest major label uh, 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 thing, I guess, of, of anybody that, that I know because, um, you know, we went from an independent label to them and then back again, and it never felt like we left. It was like, they, they, they knew that they believed in the record and they thought they could sell it to radio. They thought, you know, there's three or four big radio hits on here. And so we were like, okay, we agree with that. That would be great. We would love to be on the radio. Um, and they were like, you know, we can, get you a bigger booking agent and we can put you on these big, you know, tours with big bands and blah, blah, blah. And we were like, no, we're going to continue to tour in our van with the, the the booking agent that we have in the circuit of the bands that we love and that we play with. And they, they were like, okay, that's cool too. It seems to be working for you. So (laughs) they basically just left us alone and then they did whatever they did to sell the record, which, uh, you know, obviously didn't work very well or else they wouldn't have dropped us. But I, it kind of like truck stop love. I kind of feel like they didn't know what to do with us. Mm -hmm. There was no, there was literally no interference. Nobody ever said, change what you're doing, dress a different way. The music needs to sound like this. They would just, you know, come to the shows when we were in town and we would visit the, the big office and steal a bunch of you know cds and say hi to everybody and leave you know it was like it was really bizarre because we we kind of kept thinking you know at one point this is gonna crack and it's either gonna work and they're gonna keep doing it or they're gonna realize that you know they're not getting what they wanted out of this deal which is kind of what happened you know a new vice president came in and just dropped a ton of bands that had the uh, Uh, you know, low numbers on the, on the sales sheet. And I was told she didn't even know who we were when, when we got dropped. So (laughs) it was kind of like, and then we went to initial and they were happy to have us. They were like, fuck yeah, that's amazing. Let's do it. And we had another record ready to go. So
1: that's cool. And what was sort of the, what was the conversation with them? Like, was it we've, we've hung, we've seen you guys forever. And I just think it makes sense.
2: Yeah. I think they were actually trying to diversify a little bit and they wanted more of a pop sounding band on their label. And, um, You know the conversation with them was really short. It was, "Will you get the record in stores?" And they said, "Yes, it will be everywhere." And we were like, "Okay, let's do it." I don't even think, like in the end, I don't know that we actually even signed anything. Like they said, "Yes, let's do it," and then we made the record and gave it to them, and immediately went out on the road. That was it.
1: And what was it? I mean, you guys definitely been up up to that point. If you think about initial records that you know, it'd been it'd been five plus years. Um, What was the sentiment with everybody? about the band did it feel like there was forward momentum or was it just you were still young enough where it was like we're just going to do these crappy jobs and tour and do it and it was still that 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 was still it or was there were were there people being like in the band being like is this what's going to happen like are we going to really make it or what did you feel like you had
2: <laughs> well at that point it was weird because we um, you know we were a, a pretty good reliable opening act and then when when the initial record Uh, came out we were headlining which was really strange you know um so we had like bands like fallout boy opening for us (laughs) which was uh kind of hilarious if you think about it um but um yeah there was momentum for sure we we thought you know being on an independent label is is going to be great for us and it's it's either going to be like a bump in the road uh and then you know we'll get picked up by somebody again or like we've seen, you know, since then, there's a ton of independent labels, uh, that can survive and thrive and actually be better for bands than, than majors. So we felt like we had kind of had our crack at, at a major and, you know, it wasn't really going to slow us down or anything. Um, and so, yeah, there, there did feel like some momentum, um, you know, building and, and, uh, I felt like the record was, uh, you know, really representational, I guess, of where we were at at the moment. But we had a whole nother record just sitting there ready to go um, because we figured, you know, we'll get picked up by somebody else and, and, and put that out. Um, and then it just, we didn't, and it didn't come
1: out. <laughs> so, was was that the one that you waited until 2010 to release?
2: Yeah, and those are just demos for that record, right? Like Got it. Those, those songs uh, essentially... Um, you know, would have been re-recorded and uh, with Ed and and probably and and uh, you know put put, put uh, some actual sonic awesomeness to it because they were pretty basement style recordings. But yeah, those were those were the ones.
1: And then during this whole time. Uh, I know music or film is a huge deal for you, and uh when did the when did you i mean was obviously i 'm sure going to movies early on um, but having sort of two i mean sometimes a lot of a lot of people it 's like they 're all into music and that 's what they 're up to and I know other people have other interests, but I feel like you kind of had both of these loves at the same time when did the when did the film part start and when did you kind of feel like you could you could contribute instead of just ingest movies?
2: Yeah, I've been obsessed with movies uh, probably as long as I've been obsessed with music. And and when I was a kid, you know, I used to, I, I had a calendar that I would I would write on, like a little diary of sorts and, and say, you know, what happened to me that day. And <clears throat> if you go back and, <clears throat> excuse me, if you go back and look at some of the uh, earlier calendars, they stopped being uh, uh, me talking about my day and ended up being a list of what movies I saw and then and then the calendar turned into like uh uh me writing down the year that the movie came out and the name of the director <laughs> it was like at one point you know i was seriously addicted and so in high school i worked at the local movie theater and i became a projectionist back in the days when i actually had projectionists <laughs> um and so i would like build the the reels i was the guy that would you know splice the 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 seven reels of a movie into one big platter uh, and then I, I was responsible at an eightplex. I had a room upstairs and I was responsible for getting all of the movies uh, started on time and, and um, you know, previewing them before they came out. So if opening day was Friday, you know, we'd get a movie on on Thursday afternoon. And even though it was a school night, I was in high school at the time, I would stay up until three or four in the morning because when the theater closed, I had to preview all the movies that were opening the next day to make sure that I'd put them together in the proper order, hadn't spliced in a real upside down or something like that. So, um, yeah, that was like really early on. I had I had the bug for movies, and so when Ultimate Fake Book went on tour, Bill was also really into movies, and um, it was kind of like this thing where we, we would see movies a lot on the road, and um, at, at a certain point, we thought it would be funny to do movie reviews because we're constantly arguing about movies in the band after we see them and then we thought well it'll be funny to like put movie reviews up on the website we can like write them in emails and send them to the webmaster and he can put them up and um that's kind of how uh scene stealers was was born which is uh uh the website that i started when when fake book broke up and came home and uh i got a film degree at ku and then turned into a film critic.
1: (laughs) And that was something, I mean, you had, you had written about it for scene stealers and then you were writing for other folks too, right? you were writing for the local paper or things like that, right?
2: Yeah. The Kansas city star, the Lawrence journal world. And currently I'm the film critic for the pitch, which is the alternative, uh, monthly in, in Kansas city.
1: Oh, that's cool. I just think it's so funny that you, when you, when you talk about the, you know, working at the theater and I had a college, I had a roommate and my best friend was the, I worked at the pizza restaurant in college and he during over the summer and he worked at the movie theater so we ate for free all the time and we saw every single movie in 99 because we would have that we would have the staff screening on wednesdays or thursdays and i think it's that whatever that guy's job it was as soon as it was done they they would screen it for everybody at the staff and then and so that whole summer i feel like there was that you're totally right that guy up there that was like you had to make sure that those Things were put in the right order.
2: Yeah, yeah, that was my job. It was pretty amazing. You know, my parents were like, uh, they understood that being a projectionist was a, a, a little bit more responsibility than, you know, a ticket taker or a concession guy. So when I got that promotion, uh, it was inherent that I'd be able to work those hours. And, uh, my parents allowed it, you know, so there I am, you know, on a Thursday night coming home at three or four in the morning and getting up and going to school the next day. That's,
1: I know, but then you just seen the movie, like you had to have been like, you know, amped. Like it wasn't like you were tired. Oh yeah.
2: No, it was great, dude. I I, 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 this was 1988. And, uh, so I, I remember putting together, uh, the six or seven reels of, uh, the eventual best picture winner Rain Man, uh, that year. And uh, nobody really knew anything about it. And I put that thing together and watched it the night before. And then I went to school the next day and told everybody, oh, you guys gotta see this movie. It's amazing, boy. You know, and it was like, I was always like the, the guy who got to, See everything before it came out and so i think i turned into a film critic so i could continue that streak.
1: <laughs> but also i think it is that it's you know that same thing kind of like music like you heard a record before you're telling all your friends at school or you saw the band the night before you telling everybody and then oh, yeah. that word of mouth It's same thing with james dewey's girlfriend word of mouth i heard about this band you should like it's just i think throughout all of throughout all of these Moments that still matters so much.
2: Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I don't know how how people find music today. I know how I find it, um but I think that uh finding music on the internet is is not the same thing as what it used to be when you know uh, uh communities would would kind of bond over over something, and it was because of that. It was because of what we're enough, and so you know, you had to go to a show and, and see a band and then see band open for another band, right, that you like. And then the the spider web keeps continuing and, you know, you keep telling more people and they tell people and eventually, you know, people just find their way to music. And it was really cool. You know, I, I, I don't know I think the internet is as much as, as, as it's been amazing for, you know, uh, democratizing everything. I think it's also really just like crazy. There's so many options, you know, <laughs> and not and not per, and none of them are personal right they're not attached to any meaning or or anything you know because you're not actually having experiences you're just browsing on the internet
1: that's the part that i feel and i maybe because i'm old but i just think there's like this sense of emptiness and it's it's like when i i don't know if i have someone even next to me and we're looking on the internet it feels more like you it's like this um i don't know it, it it's it's so singular but it seems like you need to have people around even to feel that experience attached to it. Um, you can watch videos till you're blue in the face of, face of a band. I just it just doesn't do it enough.
2: Yeah, there's something about that shared experience that uh, you know that makes it makes it more real and and makes people more invested, right? Like you you remember uh, the show that you were at when whatever happened with you and your friends, and that's attached to the music and the bands and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, if people aren't going to shows and they're just, you know, finding music on the internet, then they're just having kind of a a one-on-one experience. And I think the shared experience is kind of what all of independent rock was, was based on, because if you didn't have word of mouth, you didn't have anything, you know, we certainly didn't have the radio.
1: Yeah. You had to, you had to, either your show was fucking amazing or your, uh, the, you know, whatever the, the album sounded great and you needed to go see like all those sort of things. You're right. It, it, it mattered. It didn't just need to be three minutes of music streaming somewhere.
2: Right. (laughs) And I remember this is crazy towards the end of our, uh, our run when we were on tour once, this, this kid came up to me at the merch table and, uh, he was like, Hey, what album is that song? Little apple girl on. And I'm like, Oh, well, if you know that song, then you have the album. So, you know, it's, it's on This Will Be Laughing Week. And he's like, oh, no, I just got it on Napster.
1: <laughs> oh, like, shit.
2: Oh, okay. I get it. So we were, we were you know, right at the, at the tail end of, of our career was the beginning of, of digital file sharing. And we they thought of that, you know, it was such a, a normal thing to assume that if somebody knew a song that they had the record you know, or their friend had it or something. You're
1: right. It. That, that um, was over.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was a strange moment. And I have to say, I was I was kind of glad when we were, you know, out of trying to make a living from it. I was kind of happy that we weren't going to have to figure that one out.
1: Yeah. And then I think, too, from you, you know, everybody sort of, changing you know if the band's ending and you were doing the film stuff you went back to school uh you know was that kind of the all right i need to get something more serious and i'm going to stick around here what were some of the thoughts kind of going through you knew you had the film stuff but were there other you know things that you'd wanted to do professionally
2: yeah i mean you know um i think it was really obvious we were, were bill and nick and i are not the kind of guys who just want to play in bands you know like we're not Musicians to be musicians. You know, it's like we did this band together and this band was awesome and we had a ton of fun. We don't, we're not going to hop around in 16 other bands because, you know, we enjoy playing our instrument, right? Like I'm not just going to go play drums for somebody because I like playing the drums. I have to be like a thousand percent invested. And so we knew that at that point we were not trying to make a living at it anymore, but we also knew that we were musicians and we're going to keep doing it for fun anyway. Um, so I went back to school to try to, you know, figure out what I was going to do with my life and how I was going to pay the rent, but I, I was still exploring my passion, you know, knowing that, uh, you know, reviewing movies is not a career either. Like I got, I got into it knowing that I didn't want to make them, but I did want to study them and I did want to write about them. Uh, but also knowing that when I graduate, I'm still going to have to figure out what I'm doing because that's not a career either. You know, <laughs> film critics are, are dying off as fast as, as bands are. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I just kind of fell into uh, social media at that time and, and a marketing job and just kind of figured my way out uh, through that. But, you know, Nick and I, uh, when when Ultimate Book broke up, we, we wanted to uh, play with our friends JoJo and Cameron, who were in this band called Podstar. And so that's when we started The Dead Girls. Um, and the dead girls, you know, 10 years, that band was together and we put out more music than truck stop love and ultimate fake book combined. But, uh, uh, we never tried to make a living at it. You know, it was just music's in our blood. We, we keep writing and recording and, you know, making new records and, and playing live, but we're not trying to, you know, make a living at it anymore. So that was kind of just for fun, you know, <laughs> which was awesome.
1: Uh, and then one thing too, I want to bring up too, which I thought, you know, the, uh, you were on the, a short lived TV show, the world series of pop culture. Um, was that sort <laughs> of the, from seeing the movies and being invested in those kind of things, sort of the, your, your memory of things you, did you feel like you could remember stuff better than anybody else?
2: Oh, uh, I mean, you know, music and, and movie trivia is kind of like, it's just, in there. Like it takes up an, an, an enormous amount of my brain. And, <laughs> and like, I can't remember, you know, when to pay the bills or to turn the sprinkler off or any kind of like normal things, but I can tell you what your movie came out and who directed it and who was in it and blah, blah, blah. And so <laughs> I, I, but I've always also been this, and this is how I got into air guitar too. When I see something that I like, I just go for it. You know, there's no point in just a lot of people will will see a show like the World Series of Pop Culture on TV and go, Oh, this is a great show. I'd do really good on that show. But I'm the kind of person who will find out how to try out for it, convince two of my best friends to drive to Austin, Texas with me, uh, take a huge uh, uh, knowledge quiz, uh, pass the quiz, do an interview on camera, and then. (laughs) come up with a team name and and literally go on the show you know it was like uh that's kind of like you know when i when i saw the documentary about air guitar um i immediately looked it up online and figured out where the nearest competition was and entered my first year and got into nationals it's like you know i've always had that kind of an attitude if if you think that you're going to be good at something then just do it you know
1: It is that sort of the – but I think that's you being a a creator. Like instead of – you're not just – like I actually don't – I mean I know you watch movies and stuff. But like for Netflix, like a night for me is not sitting there and watching like a thousand episodes on a Netflix thing. It's like creating something or making something. And I think that different attitude of you seeing that and being like I want to try that and I want to go do that. Um, And even if – and it's not a I'm going to win. It's just I just want to see if I can do it right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I think there's a challenge to it, right? Where you're like, you, you, you see something and you go, can I do that? I think I can do that. Yeah, I, I can do that. Let's, let's see what it takes to do that, you know? And then, and then, uh, you know, it just, either it works or it doesn't, you know? But the, the funny thing about that was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, my friends oftentimes will, accuse me, of you of know, them into, uh, 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 situations, right? Like when, when, when Ultimate Book was briefly a four-piece, uh, JD was our, our uh, additional guitar player and singer, and um, he was the guy that I convinced to do scene stealers with me, and so we were doing YouTube uh, movie reviews, the two of us, uh, before anybody was doing YouTube movie reviews, you know, with the clips from the film and talking about it, like, you know, Siskel and Ebert, that kind of a thing, and I just pushed him into it. You know, it's just like, I need two people to do this and you would be So let's do this. And it seems like I'm always getting my friends into trouble with my cockamamie ideas, which is why all four of the dead girls eventually wound up being competitive air guitarists. as well.
1: (laughs) I think, you know, a a group of people needs that though. They need someone that's going to get them to go do stuff in that fine, I had a friend in college that was sort of the, the movie film guy and we were all in his movie. He convinced us all yeah. to spend way too much time on yeah. it and we were in it but that was kind of the it was also an experience and we got to hang out and it was sort of like there was a reason to it too if that makes sense
2: yeah i mean you know uh working on a creative project together is one of the most fulfilling things you can ever do honestly and and even with air guitar like it, it eventually became a a community a group type thing you know like uh everybody else got into it as well and uh, I think actually the Dead Girls are the only band in the history of uh, U.S. Air Guitar to have all four members uh, make it to U.S. Air Guitar Nationals at one point. Oh wow! <laughs> Which is an odd distinction for uh, a bunch of guys who who write and play uh, who play instruments and write their own songs. <laughs> um, but yeah, when I when I won the Air Guitar World Championship, uh, I won it partially because um, I it was air guitaring my own song. So um, my, my friend Doug, uh, who played in a metal band uh, called Puke Weasel back in Manhattan, who's an amazing guitarist, uh, I came up with the idea to write from the ground up an original track just for competitive air guitar. And so I collaborated with Doug, and we wrote that, and that's me playing the drums on the track uh, uh, at the World Championships,
1: did you get to say that when you said this is a like? How was that sort of shown to people that this wasn't an original song? Because you're right, that is a different twist than. And you can actually write for what you're doing. You can make it yeah, have yeah, the yeah. most, you know, the sort of the start, stop, or the high note. Like yep. you can, you can write all of that in. It's almost like you're cheating.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that you picked up on that. It's actually, uh, it's completely uh, designing a routine from the ground up, which nobody's ever able to do because usually they're using a piece of music that they didn't write, right? That or or even, even that, a piece of music that is, exists already. And then you're, you're just writing what you do to that. But in designing it from the ground up, we had complete freedom. And so we could do the thing where the record all of a sudden stops and, and turns backwards. And then I have to do the same thing backwards that I just did
1: forwards. It's timing, like you knowing that, okay, people can handle you know, five seconds of a bass solo or of this yeah. or yeah. this drum fill it. And if it's any longer, people start to wane. So you could actually say, okay, six seconds of this drum fill is what people want. Like you could literally, you guys, you guys cheated.
2: <laughs> oh, we totally did. And when I, when I got to Finland that year, uh, all of the, uh, air guitarists from all over the country that were there to compete were like, oh man, that's really cool. You know, what, what's, what's, what song are you doing this year? And I'm like, oh, it's this song I wrote. And they were like, huh? <laughs> they were like, can you do that? Is that cheating? You can't do that. And I was like, yeah, I did. I mean, <laughs> it's like. And the funny thing is, is, is uh, that eventually became uh, the, the story behind that that song, and 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 how I came up with the idea, and then how we put it together, uh, became a, a TEDx talk that i did
1: which i think is uh, if anybody out there listening should um, should look this up it's pretty easy to find just search your name and, and and ted talk i actually watched a little bit of it i think that was a kind of a cool uh moment for you because it does kind of play into um you know the creative process right
2: yeah i mean it was it was completely uh you know it's actually kind of like you know what we're supposed to be doing every day at our jobs if we're good right is is uh Solving problems with creativity, and essentially the problem was is that I was, you know, in my 40s, <laughs> and uh, everybody else doing air guitar is younger and more limber, and the only way I I figured that I could get an edge on them was if I designed the routine from the ground up and and made it a three act structure and was able to, you know, put all these dream moves in there that that I knew I could do because if you try to like play, uh, somebody else's style. If you see an air guitarist that you think is really good and then you try to like mimic that it's always going to be terrible because it has to come from you and your body type is not the same as them. So I'm seeing all these young skinny, you know, people doing all this crazy acrobatic stuff. And I'm like, well, I can't do that. So let's try something else. Let's <laughs> let's build something really absurd from the ground up.
1: That's great. Again, taking something that was established and trying something new on top of it. And now, I think that only that that probably progressed the sport of it. Correct?
2: Well, I I know that people have been adding a lot uh, of their own music to things. Like even before that, people were kind of adding in like little bits of solos or something or accentuating a part. Um, but I don't know. Uh, there was a, a guy in Germany. Uh, Daniel uh, Mordrye Oldmire, uh, who who did uh, who did uh, write his own song specifically for air guitar a couple years after uh, after I did uh, after I met him at the at the world championships. But if anybody else besides Daniel's done it, I I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think that's cool. Again, it it was an option, it was an idea and then it was at the right time. You no one was doing it. Let's try this. And I'm sure everybody else there was probably scared or didn't think or didn't think of it. So I feel like you're totally right. That sort of creativity within a like what was happening was what made that happen.
2: Yeah, well, it, and the, fun, the funny thing about it also is that, like, if you play air guitar, if you do competitive air guitar, you are subject to 900% ridicule. And so, like, uh, you know, uh, the the way that people troll us in social media comments and in YouTube videos is, you know, these idiots, why don't they just learn how to play a real instrument? And it's like, well, you're not really getting the point are you (laughs) no
1: no they're not
2: (laughs) yeah and half the people who do air guitar already play something you know so yeah um, but yeah if if i could just say well you're listening to me playing a real instrument and you're watching me play air guitar so and i deal with that
1: (laughs) counterpoint when i am i am a super annoying when it comes to watching movies because i am a continuity like Nazi, like I will be, uh, I am like, I'm such an asshole when it comes to that stuff. I'm like, uh, did you see that Coke plant? K- yeah, that thing was half full. Now it's full. Like, and people yeah. like will just groan because, but that's what I'm always looking for. But the other piece I think is that sort <laughs> of the performance of a band. And if the person is not playing what I'm hearing, like if they're playing a solo and their hands playing an E chord, you know, on the first fret, yeah. I will just call it out and be like, bullshit movie. Like, bullshit movie so I feel like that's even yeah. that like actors can't even play the guitar right like why should you give shit for somebody like Eric it's the same
2: <laughs> yeah that's funny that's funny and, this, and that's that's one of the things I gravitate to uh, as well when I'm watching a movie if there's ever like a musical performance immediately the musician in me kicks in and I'm looking at it and I'm like nope <laughs>
1: I'm so annoyed. Yeah. If there's a band and it's just like, dude, I'm sorry. That baseline is not that baseline. It got funkier and they didn't move their hands. It's,
2: it's, it's another thing too. Like when you see a a movie about music or a movie that like involves a creative process or putting a song together or something, when, 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 when the screenplay or when the movie gets it wrong, it's just like, they just pile on a cliche. It's like, you know, you can tell that like a writer invents this conflict here because the way that they're approaching the song is not even remotely how people do it. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's like whenever there's any any part of, of a music movie, it's the the, the first thing uh, I, I give it like the harshest review right off the bat because if it doesn't ask, uh, a muster for being uh uh you know realistic in that way that i'm just like no this is completely contrived this is bullshit <laughs> which is why this is spinal tap is like my favorite movie of all time because that got everything right and more
1: oh totally yeah uh, well cool i'm glad you're supportive of my making uh continuity errors and uh the band performances so cool i'm glad i have somebody else Absolutely. to support me <laughs> <laughs> one more thing you, you brought up earlier that i thought um I wanted to bring up and if you had any stories around is um, Nirvana was the reason I picked up a guitar, literally saw smells like teen spirit and said, I need a guitar right now. Like that's what the impulse was. I never got to I was from a small town in Vermont and they never came up there. And if they had did, I didn't know about it or was not old enough. What were some, I mean, from, from seeing them, if what era and what was sort of some uh, thoughts from that show?
2: Oh shit, dude. I have the greatest Nirvana story ever. Um so we we I I had the Sub Pop album and I was a member of the Sub Pop Singles Club, so I had Sliver and Dive uh on a seven inch and uh I had a college radio so we used to play Nirvana all the time. Um and then uh, I had I had heard that they got signed to Geffen and they got a new drummer, um, which was good because I didn't think Chad Channing was a very good drummer <laughs> on that first record and uh but i was also kind of like you know i'm coming up i'm playing drums and i'm like let's see if this new drummer's any good right and so uh we uh drove to see nirvana they had just finished recording uh nevermind and they were uh doing a little tour with dinosaur junior and the jesus lizard and um they were coming to denver and so Uh, liking all three of those bands, uh, me and a bunch of my friends drove to Denver from Manhattan, Kansas. And um, the first time that I ever heard Smells Like King Spirit was when they played it live that night. And it was like, I don't know, man. It was like something shook. Like like when Dave Grohl did that drum beat at the beginning, you know, the... Like it was just weird. Like you knew, you knew you were in the presence of something that was going to last, something that was going to matter, something that was going to like cause waves. And, and so, you know, hearing that song for the first time live is just like, you know, and also I was there with a, a friend of mine who, who also played the drums and we were all big shit about how
1: awesome we were as drummers, and then
2: we got Dave We were like, "Uh, we got practicing to do."
1: <laughs> the whole drive back until you're like, "Fuck, we got to practice. Oh, yeah. We suck."
2: Yeah, but, the, the, but here's another like thing to consider is is even though I knew that Nirvana was going to blow up and that that song especially was going to make waves somehow, uh, because you know we didn't know it was going to transform radio at the time. You know they were still playing Poison and Death Leopard on on rock radio um uh but there was something to be said about the fact that Nirvana was just one of three amazing bands on that bill that night right like we saw the Jesus Lizard on the goat tour and Dinosaur Jr was touring on green mind and it was like you know this is this is that that shared experience that I was talking about before it's like you see one great band but essentially you're seeing three different great bands and you know Nirvana was just one of them and we, we kind of knew this was a thing that was going to – it had the potential to break through because it's poppier and more mainstream than the other two. Um, but it was all part of a whole. It was all part of a, a thing, you know, that was happening. And so then Nirvana came back to uh, – or came to Lawrence, and they played at the uh, Student Union <laughs> uh, Ballroom where they used to have shows. I saw she's these there uh, back in the day as well. And, um, yeah, Nirvana and Urge Overkill – playing at the, uh, at the student union in Lawrence. That was pretty amazing too. And that was in December. It was right as November, or December, right, right before, or as smells like teen spirit was starting to, to, to break and get played a lot. Um, so those are the only two times I ever saw
1: them. And, uh, what was, were they playing like 45 minute sets? Were they just playing the whole record, uh, the new record and then some stuff off bleach? Like what was, what was like the set list?
2: Well, yeah, the 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 set in Denver, they were the middle act. They were they were opening for Dinosaur Jr. after Jesus Lizard, and so they did 45. Um, and they did uh, a lot of uh, songs from, uh, or a couple songs from Bleach and, and the seven inches that we had. Um, but they were obviously they just finished Nevermind, so they were doing you know three or four songs from that. But then when we saw them at the Union, the album had already come out, and it was mostly stuff from Nevermind with a couple songs from bleach sprinkled in and that was a full headlining set
1: that's cool and it it is funny how you talk. you you did bring up that sort of those three bands you saw in denver those were all part of the same thing and you you saw that other thing and sort of you're like okay well this is a little bit poppier (laughs)
2: yeah but but it's weird because like you know i also have this theory about about uh classic rock radio and and you know the things that that are remembered today are not necessarily the bands that were being played on the radio back then. Um, but because, uh, you know, Nirvana broke and these other two bands didn't in terms of radio, it seems like Nirvana to people who don't know any better because they've just heard them on the radio. It seems like Nirvana is a piece of this other puzzle with like Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it wasn't you know it yeah. really wasn't it was piece. it was it was it was part of this other thing and just because those other bands don't get remembered on the radio uh, i think it it kind of alters people's perception of, of of what that reality was actually like back then you know it was uh the way people remember it is, is different from how it was anything else you want to mention <laughs> uh yeah i don't know well i will say this uh mcshane has got uh, 10 new songs and um, he's been demoing and we've been working on new material. So uh, if somebody wants to put it out, if we can find somebody to put it out, we're going to have uh, probably a new ultimate pick book record next year.
1: Very cool. See, that's a part too that I love that you're still in touch. You're still doing your own thing. You've got your, you know, you've got your work stuff, but then you're able to, you know, get back together and make songs and be able to do it. And I think when, there's that understanding and maybe in today's world you can do that because you can just put these songs out there in the world. And maybe you do a couple shows or maybe you don't, but you can. You don't have to do the tour. You don't have to, you know, I think put in some of the groundwork and maybe that has bands uh, staying together longer because they can put in a certain amount of effort.
2: Well, we've we've been, you know, uh, I I like to call myself a, a reunion show drummer. Because all three of my bands are broken up, um, <laughs> but i seem to I seem to play like every year, uh like I just had uh Truck Stop Love and the Dead Girls played a couple weeks ago here in Lawrence, and we have one ultimate fake book show this year uh in in November with the descendants because uh Stefan lives down there, and he's a good friend of ours, and um so you know we're not an active band, but like you said it's like we're all still friends and the only reason that we're not doing this is because we have other lives and, and jobs and, and, you know, other things going on, but this is still something that we love and we can do. And I think Bill just got inspired and wrote a bunch of new tunes and wanted to send them to me and Nick and see if, if, uh, you know, if he was crazy, if they were any good or not. And they're amazing. (laughs) And We're just like, Oh, all right, I guess we need to do this, you know? So, pretty cool I, I i really value all of the the uh creative uh friendships that i've made over the years and i'm really lucky to uh have people come in and out of my life who just want to do stuff you know and so i'm excited to uh i'm excited to record some new ufb songs and and uh and let everybody hear them cool nice eric did you have fun oh yeah absolutely this was a good conversation i i didn't know what you what it was going to be like to. Yeah. It was what awesome. did you wait? Did you
1: did you were you like paranoid or something that it was just going to be? Like,
2: <laughs> no, I
1: just we. It's it's it's
2: weird when you like when when bands or when when people interview you about your band because like you you think one thing about your band and a lot of people have their own way of looking at it and so sometimes I I didn't know if this was going to be like you know a conversation about. um emo bands. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> and so this was way cooler and way deeper than that. And, and, and honestly, sometimes people aren't able to talk uh, about, um, about uh, creative stuff uh, easily, right? Like when, when you would get interviewed and, and people try to like kind of put you in a box or, or ask you questions that they think are really clever and they're really like not. <laughs> And again, learning by doing, right? You gotta go out there. You just have to like put yourself out there and just start doing it. No no one no one gives you permission. You know? It's like if you're not a self-starter, then you probably shouldn't be doing this.